brand new episode of the internet's most hated mafia themed geek podcast long coat mafia podcast it is i the one the only reverend godfather aka the martinsburg madman aka this show's frontman and main host as our bonus anniversary retrospective episodes wind down because our anniversary is getting closer in this episode we share our interview that we did a couple years ago at one of the four state comic con Hagerstown events that Ken is a regular at. And I, I say that because I don't know how many times he's appeared at the Harrisburg show, but he's always been a regular at the uh, Hagerstown show. Now, for those of you not familiar with Ken Hunt, he is a artist, inker uh, that has done... Uh, stuff for Marvel, DC, plus I think uh, many of the other publishers out there, and he might have done a lot of independent stuff as well. So I figured at the time, let's speak with Ken in regards to uh, what he does, how he does it, what his thoughts were. Um, He didn't share a lot of the fun tales that he usually uh, tells everybody that goes on, but it still was a very interesting episode in regards to our say not episode interview so that being said george cue the music we'll be right back with more of the long coat mafia podcast you're listening to the long coat mafia capiche hello everyone i am here with one the only ken hunt uh, who has been a artist in the industry for the past uh, 27, 27 years. years. And uh, just for the sake of giving the, the listening audience of what you've done in the past, what have you done in the past? Um, I have worked on the Batman books for uh, DC Comics with Talon and Batman. I've also worked on Harley Quinn for DC Comics. Um, I've worked on Lady Death for Brian Polito's Coffin Comics. Uh, I've worked on the Fem Force books way back in the day for the old AC Comics stuff. Uh, God, I've done lots of stuff for lots of different people. I think one of the, the, the most important things I ever did was what I first started on was uh, back in the early 90s, I worked with Marvel on their What If books, uh, but it never got published because he canceled the book before mine got finished. But that's that's just the way the game goes. How did you get started in, uh, in this type of work in artistry? I used to run home every day after school wanting to watch Speed Racing because I love drawing the Mach 5. I love the cartoon, love the characters, but I love the car. And I always had to draw that car. So I would run home every day after school in time to watch the show at 3 o'clock. And after it was over, I had to keep the fun going by drawing the car. So, and that's what started me drawing. But one day, I took my allowance, I went around the corner from where we live to this little corner drugstore. And I saw a comic book on the shelf, and I didn't care about the characters. All I saw was this really cool-looking cover. And that's what made me buy the book. I didn't know who the characters were. I only knew at that time who Spider-Man was and the Hulk and Captain America and maybe you know, some Batman and some Superman stuff. But that was my extent of superhero knowledge. I really, if it wasn't the household characters, I didn't know who they were. 
but I saw this comic book on the shelf. It just had this awesome looking cover. And it was the cover of Giant Size X-Men number one. So it was 1975. And I saw this book on the spinner rack and I bought it for 50 cents. That was the cover price. And ever since that book, I've wanted to draw comics and superheroes. So Speed Racer started me drawing the cartoon. But it was Giant Size X-Men number one that made me decide I wanted to do more and actually draw comic books. Has your style changed over the years? Oh, no. constantly. Constantly changes. Uh, one of the, the most important aspects of my change is I've developed a, a nerve damage in my hands from other jobs and other career choices I've made. And it's affected how I draw, and I can't hold a pencil or a pen or a brush tight anymore. So almost everything I do has a sketchy feel to it. And I've always been influenced by Bernie Wrightson's kind of sketchy lines and, and, and the type of line detailing he does. So I, I've kind of incorporated a little bit of that into me. So I can actually do a lot of the, the, the multi-line gradient styles. And yeah, I've, I've actually gotten to where I've started to emulate a little bit of Bernie Wrightson's style because I can, because my hand doesn't have to hold anything tight to do it. So, and it's, I'm learning how basically to make sketching work, <laughs> is what I'm doing. So, I guess you could say Mark Silvestri, um, I, w I want to say Mark Silvestri was a strong influence, but he really wasn't, other than the fact that, you know, Mark was just a phenomenal artist in his own right. But a lot of my stuff is um, inaccurately describing it as looking like Mark's stuff which is unintentional because we're similar style with the inking process. And as much as I would love to sit there and give Mark the credit for it, it's just a natural choice that that's the only way I can handle a pen anymore. Um, but if it comes across looking similar to his, then I'll take the compliment because I love Mark's work. It's phenomenal. And what does it for the artists uh, starting out there, what should they look for to as the basic equipment? Um, as far as uh, like drawing utensils or pens or pencils, things like that, or just what they need to know as far as the industry goes. How about a little bit of everything? Um, drawing the medium you draw in is your own personal uh, preference. I mean, there's no right or wrong pencil to use. It all depends on what's comfortable in your hand, what gets the final product, what you want. You know, so there, there is no real, real proper way to get from point A to point B in comics. As long as the editor and the publisher is happy, they don't care how you do it, as long as it's right. <laughs> um, the, the main thing I think that any aspiring artist should learn to know, and really know, is the business. Is get to understand how the business itself works. As a freelance artist, you have to understand that you technically work for yourself. You are your own business. So you have to be able to pay your own health insurance, understand that you're not getting paid vacation times, you don't get days off unless you've got enough deadline done and you're ahead of deadline to have a day off. And so basically put, if you're under a deadline crunch, you don't take time off. You might not even get time to go to bed or go to sleep. You've got to get the job done because you're only going to miss so many deadlines before they don't hire you back. And that's, that's where the work part really comes in. You know, you can draw as your passion and love what you do, like I do. 
but it is work. It is a job. And you have to be ready and understanding that it's not all fun and games. It's not all sit down and collect glory and have fans only come and get your autograph. You have to work a lot. You have to lose a lot of sleep. You're going to sacrifice a lot of personal time. And you're going to sacrifice a lot of family time because you're going to have to sit there with your nose buried in a drawing table for 10 to 20 hours a day. And that's just the way the way the game is played. Uh, how, how has the industry changed since you've been in it so long? How, have you seen the industry change? And how has it kind of changed? Within, you don't have to go into detail if you don't want to or anything like that. Well, the industry is constantly changing uh, from one decade to the next. And that's just the nature of any industry, uh, like movies, television, comics. They all change and adapt to the times. Um, comics written in the 50s and 60s wouldn't sell good today because the stories were told differently. The art styles were so different. Um, as far as the industry itself changing, um, the only real thing that's changed in, from what I've seen is how the business is handled on the retailer end of things. Um, publishers, they don't make as much money on a cover price as you might think. So when you, you sit there and you see a comic book for $4 cover price, you think, oh my God, why is it $4? It's so expensive. Um, as, a, as a fan myself, I, I think that's horrible, $4 cover price. But at the same time, Marvel and DC, it costs them anywhere between eight to $12,000 to produce a comic book. And that's before it goes to print. You know, that's their cost to pay the writer, the penciler, the anchor, the colorist, the editor, the letters, the works. You know, you got to pay all these people to create the comic book. And that's where the real hard money comes in. So if you estimate ten dollars to $12,000 to make a comic book, one issue, then you've got to sell twenty-five or 30,000 copies just to break even because the publisher doesn't make $4 on the cover price. The publisher maybe makes a dollar. At most, a dollar. Because out of that $4, the retailer has to make money, the distributor has to make money, the publisher has to make money, and the printer has to get paid. So, that's where all that money comes from. So you have to understand what the business is to really survive in the business. You, know, you can draw great pictures all day long, but if you don't understand the business you're working in, you'll never survive. How is um, the indie market or the Indiegogo Kickstarter market changed a lot of the industry? It's actually opened up a lot of doors for independent creators, and it's allowed access for more fans to reach those uh, because the, the direct market like Diamond and the other distributors out there you have a very limited way of getting at noticed by the fans and comic stores because retailers they're going to want to stock their shelves and what they know is going to sell from their shelves so they, if, if I created a book and it doesn't have a, a popular character or I'm not a big enough name to carry the book they're not going to want to put it on the shelf. They're not going to take the chance to want to pay the distributor money to put that book on the shelf. So, the Indiegogos, the Kickstarters, that's just another avenue and a good avenue for fans to jump on board to a book they've never heard of without having to worry about pressuring their distributor or their retailer 
to put it on the shelf. It's, it's, like I said, it's a business and you have to be ready to know the business to survive it. Well, the reason why I ask is because, it, as you know, there has been a lot of drama and you don't have to go, again, for disclaimer, so disclaimer, you don't have to go into it, but there's been a lot of seemingly pushback by a lot of the bigger artists for the Indiegogo. Is it just personal drama or is it, do you think it's more business related? I really can't answer that because everybody's got their own motives for doing things. Now there's some out there that do it just for the controversy because it does create publicity. There's some out there that do it because they want to stand on their own feet. They don't want to rely on a publisher for the paycheck. And they want to be able to create their own product without anybody having to tell them how to do it. And that, the best way to do that is to self-publish and get on Kickstarter and Indiegogo, places like that. And there's, I really don't have an opinion on it. I just see the facts about it. So their own personal motives are their own. Um, a prime example of a, a, a great Kickstarter brain is Brian Polito. I mean, the man is brilliant. And what he's done with Lady Death uh, and all the successful Kickstarters he's had, and he still puts Lady Death through diamonds. She goes through on the shelf every month. But at the same time, he's giving his fans a direct line to him with the Kickstarter. Because you get tons of awesome product through him on the Kickstarters. You can't get through Diamond or in stores. And that, that creates a beautiful direct line from him to his fans. And the way he interacts with his fans is the way every publisher should. Because he's personal with them. You know, he's, he loves his fans, and he knows without them, there is no business at all. So if anybody, I think, should be molded as an icon in the industry on how things should be done, as far as Kickstarters goes, is Brian Polito. Because the man's brilliant, and he knows how to treat his fans. Have you seen, uh, with cons such as Four State and... Baltimore being, I should say, in the range of something the size of four states to the largeness of a New York or a Baltimore. Have you seen a better interaction with the fans? Well, as in, from an artist standpoint. Well, from my standpoint, the smaller shows like Four State Comic Con, which is not a tiny show, it's a moderate show. Um, you get more personable because in the bigger shows you get a lot more crowd, a lot more people. And sometimes you have to rush people away from your table because you got more just flowing in. So with the smaller, more moderate shows like Fourth State Comic Con, I like those a lot more sometimes because it, I get to spend more time talking to the fans. I get to know them a little more, and they get to know me a little better. They get to spend more time with me. They get to spend more time talking to my wife, Joyce, who they love talking to her just as much as me, more so because I'm usually with my face buried in a drawing, which I'm actually doing while we're talking right now at this interview. I'm working on the drawing. But she, she'll she sit there and deal with the fans and the kids. and They have a lot of good times talking to her. And you can't do that a lot with the big shows. You have to keep moving people constantly or else they start backing up in the aisles and you get crowd problems. So my personal opinion is the big shows are wonderful. I can't condemn any of them. But as personally, I love spending time with my fans. I love talking to them. 
So financially, it's a toss-up. But personally, I like the more moderate shows because I do get to talk and deal and spend time and really get to know my fan base, which I don't get to do with the big shows. Do you, are you, even though you, you're an artist, are you a hobbyist as well? Or? Oh yeah, I love building model kits and all different kinds of weird little things. Um, I used to be into way too many things because I never had time to do it, but... Um, I like building model kits. Uh, I like just doing little odds and ends stuff. Uh, sometimes I'll just want to sit there and build something, you know, like go work on a deck or something, you know, to, to get the physical act, you know, activity going. Yeah, I'm one of the few people that doesn't care about going out mowing the lawn because it gets me off my butt. <laughs> you know, I spend 10 hours a day on my butt. I need to get out and move around once in a while. What has the... Uh, most challenging thing that you have drawn or brought you to have to have drawn Pikachu. 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 Why is that? Well, well, because he's such a simplistic character, and I, the simple characters like cartoon characters such as Pikachu and Tweety Bird and Mickey Mouse, those those are an extreme challenge for me to draw because if you don't get the the, the physical aspects just right, it doesn't look like the character. Whereas I can draw Batman a hundred different ways, and as long as I get a silhouette right, it's still Batman. You know, but it's more because they're simplified drawings, and they're very anatomically incorrect, and they, they really screw my head up when I try to draw them, and it makes it much more difficult. I mean, I, I like drawing a super detailed Batman figure or a Harley Quinn or the Joker with tons of wrinkles in his face. And, gnarly teeth or whatever and because I can get into those fine details it just comes better to me but if I do something as simple as say Snoopy he's going to kick my butt all day long because he's too simplified so it's, it's psychological really I mean if I practice more and more and more I can do them all day long but my mind doesn't like wrapping around simplistic design what else? Uh, what's your, what has you, your favorite show been to go to? My personal favorite yeah. convention? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's kind of tough. I really don't have a personal favorite convention. I mean, I've been to a lot of them. I think my... Uh, which one has been the most fun then? The most fun? Yeah. Wow, I have fun at all of them. Really, I do. Because uh, I, I, we just have a lot of laughs and a lot of good times with fans. Um, I really can't put, put a favorite out there. I really can't. Because, uh, like, Four State. I mean, Four State's a really moderate-sized show. But my wife and I, we've been having a lot of great laughs, a lot of fun interacting with people. We know a lot of the people that run the show. We know a lot of celebrity guests. So we have a good time. Uh, we go to Baltimore Comic Con. Baltimore Comic Con is 20 times the size of the show. Uh, but we still have a good time there because we know so many people. The fans are great. The crowd is fun. Always some fun costumes, cosplayers, to say. Um, but you know, th there's some shows that you're just miserable at too because it's too much. You know, sometimes it's just overwhelming, and it's and it's not because of what's in the show. It's because of the the travel time to get there, the cost of the show to be there, um, the stress level of what you have to present to be there. And, you know, so I try not to do those kind of shows to where it becomes too much work. I try to stick to shows where it can just be relaxing. Because if I'm stressed out, my fans are stressed out. 
They don't like coming to me when I'm in a bad mood. Who wants to deal with me when I'm in a bad mood, right? So I stick to shows where we can sit and relax and have fun. So it's not always about making a ton of money to me. I don't have to. It's about having fun with the fans. So I stick to those kind of shows. And I can't really put names on them either because I do it with those particular shows. And I try to do it every show I do. So... If I have a bad experience with the show, nine times out of ten, I don't go back. Just because it's going to stick with me and I'm going to end up repeating the mistake. So, but. <clears throat> um, On that kind of that note, uh, what tips and tricks we have, would you have for someone that is trying to become a artist? Not so much a comic artist, but someone who draws or along those lines. Well... Any, any artistic medium, you need to understand the business you're getting into. I mean, if you want to be a graphic designer, then focus on the type of design work you want to do. If you want to be the guy that draws the, the instructions for putting together an entertainment sign, I mean, that's a graphic art. That, that's an illustrative art. Um, it's basically AutoCAD design, things like that. And there is a, there is a market for that. Um, but some people think, well, I don't know what kind of art to get into. And the biggest thing a lot of people don't realize is that every single thing you look at in this world that man has created started off on somebody's drawing table. Whether it be the chair you're sitting in, or the ring on your finger, or the bib overalls you're wearing, or the suspenders you're wearing, you know, or the belt you're wearing, it doesn't matter. Somebody drew it. I mean, fashion designers. They sit down with a pencil and paper, the colored pencils, and they draw the designs in their head onto a sheet of paper. Then they decide what materials they're going to make it out of, and then they send it to a sewing machine. So, again, fashion designers. Everything starts out with a pencil. Everything starts out as a drawing. Every special effect you see in a movie, there's a concept artist behind it. So, there's no limit. You just have to figure out what industry you want to be in. Would you recommend uh, to those who are doing it either for fun or anything like that, speaking to artists like yourself for tips and tricks in reference to a different style or creating something different? Well, yeah, that's, that's the thing. If you, if you have a particular art style you want to be proficient at or you just want to refine, even if it's just for fun, you know, there's a lot of artists like myself that are happy to give tips. I love giving tips. I, mean, I went to the school of hard knocks. I had no formal training. I'm self-taught. So I had to learn everything the hardest way possible. Because I had nobody looking over my shoulder going, you're pressing too hard on that pencil, or you're leaning too hard on the brush when you ink that line. You know, you have to lighten it up here and darken it there. You know, I didn't have anybody looking over my shoulder. So when somebody comes to me for pointers, I'm happy to give them. Because, like I said, I never got it. You know, I got some tips from my parents when I was a kid. But there was only so much they knew. And my father was an amateur cartoonist at times, and he would draw stuff for people. And my mother was a graphic designer, but neither one of them anywhere near the comic industry type stuff. What I wanted to do. So once I got to a certain level of skill, there was nothing they could help me do. And the, the few comic conventions that were around at that time would have maybe one or two artists in them. They were little shit. And most of the time, they were so busy, they couldn't stop and give me pointers. And so it was just, learn it the hard way. 
So it kind of, in a way, when a fan like myself comes up to you and says, I liked your art in book X, how the heck did you do that? That kind of, does that send a kind of, uh, not so much pride, but... Well, it does, it does give a bit of an ego boost when, when somebody comes up and tells you that. Of course it does. Everybody wants to be praised. Yeah, but you also have to learn to, to take the good with the bad because art is such a subjective thing. I mean, some people, like me, I mean, some people out there are going to walk up and say, oh my God, I love your art, it's like the best ever. And then somebody's going to walk up and go, God, I can't stand it, he sucks. You know, because they, my style does not appeal to them. They don't like the way I draw things. And that's just the norm. It's the way it is. But when, regarding your question now, if somebody walks up and says something like that, I would ask them to kind of specify what exactly, what part they're talking about. So if, if they say, well, how did you get those lines like that? You know, I, I have to ask them, like, be a little more specific. Which part are you talking about? So, because it's, I've got a million lines in one drawing over here. That I'm looking at right now, it's a uh, darkness piece. There's over a million lines in that drawing. And they said, well, how did you do this? I would explain to them in detail exactly how I achieved that effect with that particular part of the drawing. You know, so there's, I'd have to break it down so I could explain better in detail what I did. So I can't just generalize, well, I drew it, then I inked it, and there it is. You know, that doesn't right. tell you anything. <laughs> you know. So, I, I see that you're more of the hands-on with the, granted everything's hands-on, in a way, yeah. but do you prefer more of a tactile in reference to pen and pencil on paper, or digital format? Um, digital format's a wonderful tool. <clears throat> it is. It's a wonderful tool. It's a great technological development for art. Um, however, for me personally, um, I don't draw digitally because it does cut down on the financial income. And I try to emphasize to people that do digital art and only do digital art is that if you're sitting in a convention like I'm doing right now, and somebody walks up and says, I want a sketch of the Joker or I want a sketch of Batman. <clears throat> You can't do that with an iPad. I mean, you can draw it on an iPad, but you're not handing them any draw. You're just emailing them a digital draw. There's so many collectors out there that want an original piece of artwork to hold in their hand. So if you just draw strictly digital artwork, there is no original piece of art that could become worth thousands of dollars to a collector. Now, if I did a Batman cover for DC Comics, and I did it digitally, and a collector comes up and says, I want to buy the original artwork for $5,000. Offers me $5,000 for the original art because he loves it that much. I have nothing to hand me, or the woman. You know, it's like, what do you do? You know, you, you get proficient at one thing because you can meet your deadlines, but you also cut off your revenue if you don't have a physical piece to hand someone. You know, yes, the publisher is paying you for the artwork, that you're producing, but they're not always paying for the original piece that you still have in possession, which you can now sell to a collector. So by having that, yes, you're basically getting double paid, but sometimes the publishers will want you to contribute the original art to them. So that all depends on the contract. Now with me, I keep all original art. 
because I know there are collectors out there, and that's why with my, what I do with publishers, I'm not very expensive for publishers. I'm actually very cheap, so I can keep getting work. But I also know that there's collectors out there that want to buy the original artwork from me, and that's where I make my real money, is in selling the original artwork. And when you're sitting in a convention, you should be able to sit down with some Bristol board and a couple pencils and pens or inks or whatever, paint, whatever you want to use, and be able to do some quick hand-drawn pieces for the fans and collectors that are walking through the show. You know, right on site. You should be able to do that. Because you are creating additional revenue for yourself of being able to tear out a piece of paper and hand it to the fan. And it's a one-of-a-kind piece. That's the beauty of it. Digital art, you make into a print, and that print can be made a million times. And it's still the same piece of art. But the hand-drawn pencil sketch that that was made from, there's only one of that. And it's worth ten times more than a million prints. And on that note, I shall end things. I do appreciate it. And uh, folks at home, you can see Ken Hunt on probably... At multiple shows, do you have a, a fan page? Or, uh, um, yeah, you can uh, find me on Facebook at uh, facebook.com, Ken Hunt Art, one word. And also on uh, facebook.com, ken.hunt.104. That's where you can send me a friend request. Um, you can just Google me, too. I'm all over the place. Um, but I do have some appearances coming up soon. I have uh, a store appearance in Salem, Massachusetts on October 27th at Silver Moon Comics and Collectibles. I'll be there all day. Um, and then I will be going to the Gamer Comic Expo in Miami, Florida. Um, I believe it's the... Uh, it's in November. I'm trying to remember the date. Um, I think it's uh, November 9th through the 12th. I'll be there all four days. Again, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. You're listening to the Long Coat Mafia. Capish. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Ken Hunt and going down memory lane with us in this bonus anniversary retrospective episode. And uh, just to let you know, there might be another one or two, if not three, more episodes going up depending on how I feel think how I feel over the next day or two. But uh, as always, keep in mind we do have the challenge in regards to our chip jar. Uh, the links are in the description for that. It would be listed under GoFundMe. We do have our partner Dubby uh, and the ten percent off code uh, in regards to that. Uh, just head if you're interested in buying Dubby energy drink, just head to dubby.gg and Use code LCM Podcast in the uh, when you check out for ten percent off. Uh, plus, we have a Patreon, which you get a couple extra benefits if you want that. Now, we're not really though we're promoting that. We're not really concerned about that. If you want to do it, it's up to you. Share because as always, liking, sharing, subscribing is always helpful. We're always looking for new subscribers. We're always looking for new followers and so forth and so on. We are now on Threads, the whole new thing from. Facebook, which is still very new and clunky, but either way, all our links to everything is down below for the exceptional threads. We'll get that worked out soon um, because there are things we have to do today as of this posting 
and the rest of this weekend. And we'll get around to updating all our fun jazz and so forth and so on. Uh, we'll have another main episode next week. Hopefully, we'll record it on Sunday, if not on Tuesday, our official anniversary day. So, either way, that's it for me. Uh, I have things to do. I have to get ready for my 9 to 5. All of you out there, take care. Remember, if you have any questions, comments, smart remarks, go send us an email at longcoatmafia at gmail.com. Uh, we have uh, all this uh, stuff on Facebook or that you could, you know, put a comment there. Uh, and YouTube, our Facebook page is uh, facebook.com slash the Longcoat Mafia podcast. Again, our YouTube channel, all that's in the description. We uh, All the links, you could put comments there. We do respond to stuff. Plus, if you're a member or will be a member of Patreon, we'll comment you know comment there uh, get stuff started kind of conversation started so either way i have things to do i am at i gotta go i am out of here and see you next episode later gators you've been listening to the long coat mafia podcast the internet's most hated and mafia themed geek podcast 